Welcome to Episode 5 of Grading the Nutmeg, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Today's episode was inspired by Connecticut Captured, a 21st century look at an American classic, on view at the Connecticut Historical Society in Hartford through March 12th. This exhibit, by acclaimed visual documentarian Carol M. Highsmith, is an effort to capture in images the character of Connecticut in the early 21st century. As state historian, I worked with Carol on this project, and when the exhibit opened, my musical group, the Band of Steady Habits, and I gave a presentation about the things that make Connecticut so distinctively itself. Someone recorded the talk, and though the sound is far from perfect, we thought you might find this account of Connecticut's character worth a listen. It's called, What Makes Connecticut, Connecticut? And it's episode five of Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you all for coming out. We, we very much appreciate it. I'm surprised and thrilled to see so many people here. Uh, as you may have noticed when we were frantically running around trying to set up the alternate projector, it is already clear that the state historian of Rhode Island has mischief afoot tonight. <laughs> so, you know, there may be some extra tuning and stopping in places here and there, but we're from Connecticut. We persevere. So, so with that in mind, let's, let's talk about what makes Connecticut, Connecticut. <laughs> the old church, our town's tallest buildings. Vine walls of stone that framed the fields where my great-grandfather's grandfather plowed out his family's livelihood. I view those fields through rippled window panes of the house Eliezer Woodward built in 1780. A two-story, eight-room hilltop anchor of stability in a time of revolution. My old single-stack colonial farmhouse in Columbia and the literally thousands of historic houses like it that are treasured parts of each of our 169 towns are the storybook Connecticut. They're the foundation of the spirit and character of Connecticut that Carol Highsmith set out to capture in images for the U.S. Library of Congress and which comprise the Connecticut Captured Exhibit that opens tonight. I'm proud to say I worked with Carol on this exhibit, not only in helping her identify some of Connecticut's must-see iconic places, but also in writing the introduction to the accompanying book, an essay that tries to describe in words the character of Connecticut Highsmith has captured in images. So, before we leave and go to the gallery and let those images speak for themselves, 
We want to set the stage by describing for you what Carol and I think is the source and nature of Connecticut's character. To do that, as you've already heard, I'm joined by a group of musicians whose, uh, who just make me happy every time I'm around them. Talented people who joined me last summer. It took us six months to come up with a name, but we are now officially the Band of Steady Habits. And let me introduce to you the, the band. Here we have, and you'll recognize right away that these two sisters are identical twins. It's Keegan Smith and Rachel Smith, real names. That They actually... They aren't twins. They aren't even sisters, but they've been together since childhood, sing in the same choirs, and they are best buds forever. Is that fair to say? <laughs> Next to them, our ace acoustic musician extraordinaire, uh, Jeremy Teitelbaum, banjo and guitar and everything good in music. Now, that would be enough to qualify him for lead status in the band of steady habits. But Jeremy is also the dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Connecticut, <laughs> of which I am a historian in that department, so he's sort of my boss, except for the next 30 minutes. <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> but I have, I, you know, it's pretty cool to have the dean of your college also a darn good musician. So, if any of you are from other schools, I'll put my dean up against your dean anytime. <laughs> Bring them on. Next to Jeremy is our resident curmudgeon and best guy, Duke York. Duke, Duke, Duke is just everything. With a name like Duke, go ahead, give it a personality, that's Duke. He, he is our guy. So, that's the band of steady habits. I'm the one they carry, uh, and and they they make making music so much fun for me. And I hope you enjoy it, or at least don't throw anything hard. <laughs> so, having introduced the band, let's go back now to those foundational Yankee farmsteads, whose owners answered Israel Putnam's call to defend embattled Boston after the shot heard round the world. In Connecticut, such places still number in the thousands. Thanks to owner stewards who love their home's connections to the past, even as they tolerate their structural concessions to time and gravity. Culturally, these old houses, stone walls, and ancient trees of Connecticut lie at the epicenter of who we tell ourselves we are. Flinty, independent, freedom-minded folk afraid neither of hard work nor standing up for our rights. They call up a people at once both proud and restrained, eager to show in stone and clabber that they had attained social standing, but anxious to avoid ornamental excess or prideful display. It's a good story, and we like it, not just because the evidence for its historic reality surrounds us, but also because it's aspirational, a call to the present to emulate former virtues. Which one of us has not, in our own lifetimes, at some moment of national threat or danger, found inspiration in the memories of those determined Yankee Minutemen who answered America's first call to freedom many from the doorway of Connecticut home still standing. Now we're going to do a song now that is the same melody as the as Old 100, the, the Puritan hymn that we began. It's, a, it's to a poem written intentionally to that tune by Ralph Waldo Emerson in 1837 when they dedicated the Minuteman Monument at Lexington and Concord. It's called conquered him, and it goes like this. By the rude bridge that marched the flood, their flags to April's breeze unfurled, here once in battle farmers stood, and fired the shot heard round the world. The full 
Anglo-Puritan monopoly on the creation of Connecticut society lasted nearly 200 years, etching its values deep into our cultural heritage. After English Puritan migrants settled their first plantations of Windsor, Wethersfield, Hartford, and Saybrook along the Connecticut River in the 1630s, Connecticut became a vast cousinage. Almost the entire population consisted of descendants of the first 20,000 Puritans who arrived in New England between 1620 and 1640. They prayed together, cleared forests together, built homes and plowed fields and made walls together. They feared, friended, and then fought the native inhabitants together to take control over ever more land all the while joining together in holy matrimony and vigorously obeying the biblical injunction to be fruitful and multiply. The average Puritan family in Connecticut had eight children, and through those offsprings repeated intermarriages. It's an exaggeration with more truth than lie in it to say that by 1750, every Anglo-Connecticut was related. But by 1818, when the state's first constitution disestablished the Puritan church as the official religion, other cultures, voices, ideas, and faiths had begun to add new color, flavors, and influences. These rubbed against, then augmented, and sometimes supplanted the old Yankee ways. First came the Irish and Germans, to build the canals and railroads and work in the factory villages along Connecticut's fast-running streams and rivers. Fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> a one, two, a one, two. Yeah. 
cities. The immigrants from Northern Europe were joined by Southern and Eastern Europeans, the largest groups consisting of Italians and Russian Jews. They were in turn followed by French Canadians, African Americans from the United States South, and more recently still, Puerto Ricans, Latinos, and Asians. All were responding to the push and pull of homeland misfortune and Connecticut opportunity, each in their own way were shaped by and helped reshape bedrock Connecticut Yankeedom into something still the same and yet different and much more interesting. Connecticut, Connecticut changed them. Everyone who lives in our state for any period of time is molded in subtle but powerful ways by its distinctively beautiful but challenging natural environment. And the meteorological convergence zones that give us four sharply different seasons and constantly changeable weather. Mark Twain, who wrote his greatest works while living in Hartford, once said he counted 136 different kinds of weather in four and 20 hours. <laughs> he was not the first Connecticut to face the need to adapt to a changing climate. That privilege belonged to the Paleolithic bands that entered Connecticut more than 10,000 years ago as the Laurentian glaciers of the last ice age slowly retreated northward. These, the true first settlers, were nomadic hunters who followed mastodons, elk, giant beaver, and other animals into an arctic tundra. As the climate warmed and the land began to host many of the trees, plants, and wildlife we associate with Connecticut today, natives settled into communities participating in seasonal rounds, changing locations several times a year to take advantage of the best hunting, 
fishing or gathering opportunities. By 1614, the year the Dutchman Adrian Block became the first European to explore the river that gives our state its name. Connecticut's indigenous people had evolved into tribal groups with recognized languages, pottery styles, and territorial distinctions. Some of them had been growing corn on the rich alluvial floodplains for many centuries. Today, in the shadow of the world's largest casinos, owned by the Pequot and Mohegan descendants of those tribes who were here first, by archaeological sites of their ancestors dating back more than 10 millennia. Here's a song from Connecticut's Mohegan tribe, an honor song sung to recognize the significant deeds of tribal members. settlers and all the immigrant groups who came after them have faced the challenge of making their way in a glacier-carved and scoured land. Connecticut has a rich and diverse geological history. The Appalachians, among the oldest mountains on earth, make up the northwest hills of Litchfield County. The state's distinctive trap rock ridges, such as Talcott and Avon Mountain and the Hanging Hills of Meriden, were produced by lava flowing from rifts in the Earth's crust, created when the supercontinent Pangaea broke apart some 200 million years ago. These rift valleys provided the foundation of the Connecticut River Valley, the state's most fertile agricultural land. The southeast part of the state near New London was formed from Avalonia, once a part of the African plate. All these features were molded into the distinctive natural environment that is today's Connecticut by the intense glaciation of the last two million years, the most significant of which was the Laurentian ice sheet that began clawing its way through Connecticut 26,000 years ago. At its peak, the glacier covering Connecticut was more than a mile thick, and it extended 300 miles beyond the present Connecticut shoreline. By the time it melted out of the state 11,000 years later, it had completely transformed the land. The north-south grain of the landscape was accentuated. Valleys were deepened and hills rounded. The resulting pockets of lowland fertility surrounded by stony hardscrabble hills help explain why the early settlers quickly hived off new settlements, sister towns four and five miles apart at sites where needed pockets of fertile soil can be found. Connecticut today has 169 mostly small, mostly early towns, and 144 of our 169 towns still have fewer than 25,000 residents. The glaciers also carved out features that made ours a state of crystal lakes, vernal ponds, and long straight rivers, today as ever, magnets for the people around them. Chief among all is the river the Indians called Connecticut, meaning the long tidal river. 410 miles from its source at the Canadian border to its outlet into the Long Island Sound at Saybrook, the Connecticut is New England's longest and most powerful river, with 148 tributaries and a watershed of over 11,000 square miles. It provides 70% of the fresh water that flows into the Long Island Sound, greater volume than the Hudson. 
Its daily tidal flows affect water levels 60 miles upstream, all the way to Enfield Rapids above Arthur. Along with the river's outflow comes the sediment that saved much of Connecticut's natural beauty. Silt deposits at the river's mouth created a massive sandbar that remained a barrier to deep draft vessels until well into the 20th century. In consequence, Connecticut never developed a major riverine port like New York or Boston, and the lower river valley remains so pristine, the Nature Conservancy has named it one of the Western Hemisphere's 40 last great places.
not only flows through the center of the state. It has always been central to our economy, agriculture, politics, industry, and culture. The rich alluvial terraces first attracted maize growers and then colonial settlers, then market farmers for New England's rising cities, and finally shade tobacco producers. Visitors to the state are often surprised to see the long red tobacco barns next to the gauze-covered fields near Windsor and beside the road to Bradley Airport. But the Great River, the early English name for the Connecticut, offers a unique combination of soil, heat, and humidity that produces some of the finest cigar wrapper tobacco in the world. For many years, shade tobacco was the state's largest single cash crop, though today's locofor food movement has brought a resurgence of small farms to the valley. Shipbuilding, too, once flourished along the Connecticut. Deeper draft vessels had to be ox-hauled over the Saybrook Bar. During the age of sail, the state's then abundant forests attracted shipwrights up and down the river. Most of the construction was for the smaller, fast coastal vessels that plied the West Indian trade, taking food, barrel staves, and horses to be exchanged in the Caribbean for sugar, molasses, and slaves. In wartime, however, these same boats could be, and often were, converted into armed privateers that preyed on enemy merchant ships. In 1814, a British raiding party attacked the town of Essex and destroyed 27 vessels, the greatest single loss to American shipping in the entire War of 1812. Hartford, 60 miles upriver from Saybrook, was the first capital of colonial Connecticut and although travel issues and intercity rivalry led to sessions of the General Assembly being held alternately at Hartford and New Haven after 1701, Hartford became the only capital again in 1875. The decision for Hartford as the sole seat of government came about as a result of a plan to build a new showcase state capitol building overlooking the prosperous city's other new civic showcase, scenic Bushnell Park. When, after seven years of construction, the Richard M. Upjohn and James G. Batterson designed and built building was completed in 1878, all three branches of government moved from the 1792 Old State House near the river to the new Victorian edifice where state government has been centered ever since. In marked contrast to today, Hartford was, when the new capital was built, one of America's wealthiest cities. Much of that wealth was generated by the great new industries made possible by the Connecticut River Valley's machine tool revolution. Samuel Colt's onion-domed arms complex at Coltsville, the Remington typewriter plant in Parkville, the Axe factory in Collinsville, the Cheney textile mill complex in Manchester, and the Pratt & Whitney aircraft engine operations in East Hartford all evolved from the brilliant innovations in machine tool design that made the Connecticut Yankee a world-renowned symbol for technological innovation. From Putnam to Bridgeport, Waterbury to Norwich, and all points in between, Connecticut factories and the hundreds of thousands of Yankee and immigrant workers who worked in them turned our state into a manufacturing phenomenon of unprecedented proportions. This industrial greatness rose hand in hand with the insurance industry that remains synonymous with Connecticut and the publishing industry that attracted some of America's best and brightest authors, including Twain, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and later the insurance executive turned poet Wallace Stevens. If the Connecticut River centers us, it also divides us. From the beginning, the settlers of the eastern part of the state have felt a natural orientation toward an affinity with the metropole of Boston, while those west of the river have had interests more closely aligned with metropolitan New York. The differences that today are most clearly seen in the mostly friendly rivalries between Yankees west of the river and Red Sox fans east of the river were expressed two centuries ago in the violent exchanges between Tories loyal to the crown west 
and patriots east during the American Revolution. Of course, such predispositions are and were far from universal. There were plenty of patriots west of the river and vice versa. Still, those who know Connecticut well sense the very, very real differences between the quiet corner and the Gold Coast, the Litchfield Hills, and the last Green Valley. All Connecticut's, wherever they live, share a soul-deep appreciation for two things our state has in absolute abundance and in unusually close proximity. And this is something that I learned from David Leff, who is in the audience tonight. And he explained Connecticut in a way that made it finally make deep and abiding sense to me. Those two things our state has in absolute abundance and unusually close proximity are nature and culture. Even though we're the United States' fourth most densely populated state, 742.6 people per square mile, Connecticut's original dispersed settlement patterns combined with widespread reforestation let almost all of us live surrounded by or with immediate access to great natural beauty of immense variety. Ours is a state of sun-drenched summer beaches, aching red and gold leaf forests, rail beds turned hiking trails, bubbling trout streams, steep mountain paths with stunning vistas, sculpted parks, beaver ponds, and of course, the stone-walled fields and byways that let one and all know they really are in New England. It's astonishing how close all of these are to interstates that all too often resemble parking lots, right? Although our state's natural beauty is breathtakingly evident in every season, at no time is it more beautiful than in the season people come from all over the world to share with us. I'm speaking, of course, about fall. Run the old stone wall. 
treasures of a people who value ideas, find inspiration in art and theater, are moved profoundly by music and dance, and who center themselves in the present by immersing themselves in the past. Connecticut's built the nation's first public art museum, the Wadsworth <laughs> Athenaeum in 1843, and its first publicly funded park, Hartford's Bushnell Park in the 1850s. It established the third oldest university in 1701, and Yale continues to rank as one of the world's leading educational institutions. This institution, the Connecticut Historical Society, founded in 1825 as one of America's first historical societies, helps assure that those charged with creating Connecticut's future are informed by the ideas and artifacts of our past and the 1877 Goodspeed Opera House still introduces the world to classics of musical theater, such as Annie, Shenandoah, and Man of La Mancha, all of which first came to life on its stage. It might be said that each of the above institutions has been parent to the literally hundreds of museums, galleries, theaters, and concert halls that can be found in all 169 of our towns. Institutions that help make our state one of the richest cultural environments in America. As Connecticuts, we love culture because it's in our nature.
of nature, culture, history, and innovation I've only just touched on in this talk have been fully captured by the remarkable eye of Carol Highsmith. What you will see in the images on exhibit are the stories words can't tell but which the talent of a master photographer can capture in an instant. They're the places, people, seasons, and sites that are distinctively Connecticut's. When I first saw Carol's work in the Carol Highsmith archive at the Library of Congress, I jumped at the opportunity to work with her on the Connecticut project. I did so not because I thought I could capture all the magnificent of our state in a few thousand words, but because I knew she could do it in a few hundred pictures. And I believe I was right. The exhibit that you will see here is a sample of an even more wonderful body of Connecticut images a large number of which are in our book, Connecticut, and even more of them will soon be accessible in the Highsmith Archive at the Library of Congress. Whenever you wonder what it is that connects you so deeply to Connecticut, this land, its culture, and its people, I suggest you remember to revisit these images. When you do, what makes Connecticut, Connecticut, will all become clear to you clearer than words can say. Go to go. 
the sweetest thing. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Jenny Stedman and Yvette Soto at CHS and the Band of Steady Habits. Connecticut Captured, a 21st century look at an American classic, is on display at the Connecticut Historical Society in Hartford through March 12th. Carol M. Highsmith will be at the Historical Society to talk about her experiences photographing Connecticut and America on March 9th from 5.30 to 7 p.m. And you can see some of Highsmith's images of Connecticut in the fall 2015 issue of Connecticut Explored. To subscribe to Connecticut Explored or purchase the current or a back issue, visit ctexplored.org. On the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, it's an election year in case you haven't noticed, so we're bringing you stories from the spring 2016 issue of Connecticut Explored on the timely topic of voting and civic engagement. It's a podcast you just can't trump next time on Grading the Nutmeg.